scene opens. There's a tumbleweed blowing across the the barren landscape. There's toxic filth dripping from the limbs of the trees. The sky is burnt, orange, black, and red. You are there with what I can only imagine are implements of death. It is a wasteland. And you approach a ramshackle set of nailed together sheet metal and you see above three men and emblazoned in painted blood red letters says classical stuff you should know. That's good. Welcome to our tribe, ladies and gentlemen. But you're going to have to prove yourself. It's really easy. You just listen. There's three people in charge here. Arthur Jan Hannenberg, the Lord. That's me. Graham Donaldson, he's from Canada. Hi. And Thomas Fletcher Magby. Yeah. Yeah. So, welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. Uh, Things are really nice here. We have ice cream. It's better than the rest of the wasteland. (laughs) You know that the wasteland is not like Mad Max. (laughs) In in my head it is. It's a lot better that way. (laughs) Yeah. It would be improved if if it had been. Well, yeah, if you can bring in like shoulder pads with spikes on them in some sort of shotgun situation, I'll be a lot happier. Welcome to Thunderdome, boys. All right. Okay, good. <laughs> so what we're talking about today is a poem by T.S. Eliot called The Wasteland. Um, we're also talking about the art of literary illusions. Now, not illusions, Michael, um, <laughs> but literary allusions, where you allude to something. So um, where if you, uh, this is something that the internet is, thrives off of, is illusions, yes, is, is basically memes and joke, internet jokes are just allusions to things. In fact, me saying not illusions, Michael, was an allusion to... Um, Arrested Development. Arrested Development, where uh, the magician uh, Job uh, doesn't talk about, or he talks about his illusions, not his tricks. A magician named Gob. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that shows. First three seasons of that show were great. Anyway, um, so yes, literary illusions and the power that they have and... um, and how Eliot creates a poem that's basically just a giant pile of broken illusions and is talking about sort of our modern world and our modern uh, existence is like this broken pile of illusions. Um, Thomas, do you remember a couple podcasts ago your definition of art? Yes. What would you, do you remember roughly what it was, except for the moral part, the, the sentiment part or the... Oh, I can get you the exact quote. It's that it's conveying something that otherwise... Could not be if it were just in an argument. Let me give it to you. That's right. No, that's good enough. That's fine. Yeah. So conveying something um, other than just an argument. Um, In the wasteland, I have a thesis of the wasteland. uh, And my thesis is that um, T.S. Eliot is creating a poem and he is trying to convey a feeling about um, a, a sense of failure of the modern world or a sense of failure of human progress. And that basically, like, we were promised flying cars and we didn't get them. Or, or we were promised a, greater, a great future. And he's writing this in the 1920s. And the great future we had was the absolute desolation of World War I. Well, he didn't have two-day prime delivery. He did, so. yeah. So, I mean, if he was before that, mind. I feel pretty yeah, good with our true. progress. Um, but uh, so he, uh, my thesis for Wasteland is that he is trying to use, create this poem that is expressing a sentiment and a feeling that, this world that we were hoping for with all of our art, science, technology, and progress has not come to pass, or it has come to pass, and we've been reaping something that we didn't expect we were going to be reaping. Um, so I have a quote that I would like to start off this podcast with, and it is an excerpt from um, Prince Albert's um, 
introduction to the Great Exhibition of 1851. Um, so their, their great exhibition, so Prince Albert was the queen consort. He was uh, married to Queen Victoria in England. And in the 1850s, 1851, they had some, this first called the Grand Expedition or the Great Expedition. And it was where all the pieces of science and technology of the day came together in a big old tent. Actually, it was a big old crystal palace. Um, and it was basically like South by Southwest. It was like to showcase all the cool stuff that was happening in the world and all the possibilities that we have. The light bulb and telegraphs and Twitter and, you know, all the, you know, all these things were being showcased. And to start this, Prince Albert says this, um, this sort of speech, and this is the sentiment of the 19th century that I think Eliot says doesn't come to pass, or the loss of this sentiment is what he is bemoaning in the wasteland. So this is what, this is sort of the great hope of 50, or, you know, the 60 years before World War I. This is the great hope of what all of our science, technology, and progress is working us towards. Here we go. So this is Prince Albert. Nobody, however, who has paid any attention to the peculiar features of our present era will doubt for a moment that we are living at a period of most wonderful transition, which tends rapidly to accomplish that great end to which, indeed, all history points, the realization of the unity of mankind. Not a unity which breaks down the limits and levels the peculiar characteristics of the different nations on earth, but rather a unity, the result and product of those very national varieties and antagonistic qualities. The distances which separated the different nations and parts of the globe are rapidly vanishing before the achievements of modern invention, and we can traverse them with incredible ease. The languages of all nations are known, and their acquirement placed within the reach of everybody. Thought is communicated with the rapidity and even by the power of lightning. On the other hand, the great principle of division of labor, which may be called the moving power of civilization, is being extended to all branches of science, industry, and art. Whilst formerly the greatest mental energies strove at universal knowledge, and that knowledge was confined to the few, now they are directed on specialities, and in these, again, even to the minutest points. But the knowledge acquired becomes at once the property of the community at large, for whilst formerly discovery was wrapped in secrecy, the publicity of the present day causes that no sooner is a discovery or invention made than it is already improved upon and surpassed by competing efforts. The products of all quarters of the globe are placed at our disposal, and we have only to choose which is the best and cheapest for our purposes, and the powers of production are instructed to the stimulus of competition and capital." So man is approaching a more complete fulfillment of that great and sacred mission which he has to perform in this world. His reason being created after the image of God, he has to use it to discover the laws by which the Almighty governs his creation, and, by making these laws his standard of action, to conquer nature to his use, himself a divine instrument. All right. So, and then it goes on a little bit to introduce what, you know, this, this great exhibition. So you can hear the philosophy of Prince Albert in there. And it's, I mean, it's, Prince Albert, it feels like he would be 
that speech could be, you know, adapted and put into any startup nowadays. Right. Like the, the, That's what the, I was thinking. The, the startup, we're going to change the world through the powers of integrated, you know, stack servers or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so do you have that sentiment? That this global, this rapidly globalizing world, that even our antagonistic antagonistic principles are going to come together and we're going to like hammer out a better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is, I would say, the sentiment of the 19th century. This is, and in the 19th century, they were looking back and saying, we've come to this place now because we've harnessed harnessed reason born out of the ignorance of the dark ages like we have sort of we've had this renaissance and this renaissance has moved forward the ball of science and here we are reaping the benefits of science and technology moving towards a more perfect humanity this is um, prince albert's vision for the future and this is very much still like um it's less so in europe now but we sort of in the united states and canada the uh, the um, North America has kind of inherited that sort of, you know, um, technocracy of, of tomorrow, this sort of idea that through science and technology, we will perfect mankind. He even says that this is like God's mission for man. It was like he endowed us with reason and it's our job to go off and like make the world a garden through science and technology and reason. So this was, um, I'm positing this was sort of a popular sentiment in Europe at this time. And I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that this was like a strong belief. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, as these nations began to, you know, um, expand themselves, yeah, you got, to, you got to this place where there was inevitable conflict. And in World War I, before the war started, there was this belief that it was going to be, do you remember, you know, the phrase that they said what the war was going to be? No. It was going to be the war to end oh, all wars. Chris. That was the phrase of World War One: the war to end all wars. Um, and so if we just like all the powers got together and we just had one big throwdown, like in the last podcast, we'll figure out who gets to marry Emily, right? right. We'll figure out who gets to inherit this glorious future. So it's going to be the war to end all wars. We'll have a big gentleman's duel. Um, and then when it's done, the countries that were beaten will be like, you know, well, well played, old chap. And we'll just go into the background of history and we will acquiesce to, you know, the victors. And this was the sentiment of leading up to the war. And it was going to be over by Christmas and everybody wanted their peace in this great war. So, you know, get involved. Obviously, the war of World War I was not this. It was a cataclysmic event. And it started off the 20th century on its bloody path, um, not only its bloody path of, of technology um, uh, armed, uh, technology sort of um, uh, used to, um, you know, more easily destroy mankind, um, but then coupled with um, competing views, then you had, you know, it just, you know, you had the, the barbarism of World War One, and then the, the fascism and, and communism of World War Two. Um, and the miracle of, of us not killing each other after that. So um, Prince Albert's vision didn't happen. This sort of modern liberalism that Prince Albert was hoping for doesn't come to place. And Eliot is writing a poem. Um, he himself, when he was writing this, had had a mental episode. And, and uh, the poem that he wrote was much, much longer than the one I'm going to read. Um, but he wrote this poem, and my thesis is, is is that it is trying to create an artifact crystallizing this sentiment of a ruined, broken system, a ruined, broken tower. In fact, that's one of the images, is that um, the tower has fallen and mankind has been 
um, mankind has been uh, uh, sort of dispersed, sort of the Tower of Babylon. Um, So we were promised a unified vision of mankind coming together with the power of science and technology. It resulted in this vast bloody conflict, and now we are living in the ruins of this hope. And what do we have? So that's the thesis, and he uses and the, uh, he uses literary allusions to paint this picture. So I've kind of I didn't really know how to go about doing this. I'm actually going to read the entirety of the wasteland. It's going to take about nine minutes. So I hope that's cool with you guys. Sure. We've read long passages before. It's a very beautiful poem, and I think um, by hearing it, you'll hear. It's basically like different voices. Uh, I heard when I was taught the waistline, my teacher said it was kind of like you're flipping channels. You get these little, these little um, um, sort of jumps and, di- and change of narration. So I will do my best to try to um, highlight it in the way that I read. Um, but I'm going to read to you the wasteland and then talk a little bit about how what seems to be a, um, a, a heap of broken images, which is what he actually calls it, actually has this unity to it that is... Um, um, dil- that I think has a message about about the modern world. Will there be an intermission? Um, <laughs> uh, maybe. Nine minutes is, that's a lot to ask, Graham. Is it? No, I'm just oh, okay. Um, maybe I'll skip some stuff. No, I don't know. nine minutes okay. is fine. Do the whole thing. It's totally that's great. Fine. Yeah. I'm yeah, yeah. not going to translate any of the German or any of the French. I can translate it a little bit later. Actually, no, I think I'll translate it through uh, all the way through just to, to be helpful so we don't have to go back. If you have a copy of The Wasteland, I don't, I don't know if you do, you, know, you can follow along. It's also but, online if you yeah. just Google it. But it, it starts off with, uh, uh, what's those little things you put at the top of a poem? Is it prescript? Post-script? Dedication. A dedication? No, not, it's not dedicated. It's, oh, it's he, for. He does, it's for Ezra Pound. It's for Ezra Pound. Yeah. Anyway, so he has this little thing in Latin and Greek, and I will translate it to this. And it says, for once... I myself saw with my own eyes the Sibyl at Cumai hanging in a cage. And when the boy said to her, Sibyl, what do you want? She replied, I want to die. Does anybody know the, the story of the Sibyl in the cage? No. Yep. What is it? She was cursed, uh, I think, by Juno, mm-hmm. uh, by Hera. I can't, I can't remember exactly why, but her curse was that she would never die. But she was going to keep getting older. Mm-hmm. So eventually she shrank and she shrank and she shriveled and she shriveled and she could still tell you the aging, future. Kept she aging. kept aging and getting smaller and crinklier and until basically they kept her in a jar yep. or like a little cage. And put her on like a mantelpiece. I think it was she was given a wish and she said, she said I want to live forever. And June's like, all right, but you're going to keep aging. And she's like, ah, oh, dang it. Gotta be, yeah. I got to be more specific. Gosh, darn it. That, and so that yeah. led to be a lesson to my ninth graders to be specific. Yes. <laughs> so she got, so she kept getting older and older and got more wizened and wizened that she became this tiny little creature and they put her in a jar and kept her on someone's mantle and she yeah. could tell the future. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Book one, the burial of the dead. Oh, and AJ, you'll like this if you think about how Chaucer begins, which is essentially the first thing in it, written in the English language that we can, I mean, that's not necessarily true, but Chaucer is considered like the first readable English poem that we have. And it starts with, April. well, how does it start? Remember? One that April? Yeah, one that April. In beautiful April, everyone wakes up from gross winter and wants to go on a beautiful pilgrimage to Canterbury. Because it's great. It's beautiful it's and it's sunny. And I don't think it was the first English poem ever written. It was just the first great work in yes. vernacular English yeah. that wasn't in French or Latin. Yes, okay. April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land. Mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. 
Summer surprised us, coming over the Starnburger Sea with a shower of rain. We stopped in the colonnade and went on in sunlight into the Hofgarten and drank coffee and talked for an hour. Bin gar kein Russian stammen aus Litauen, echt Deutsch. And when we were children, staying at the Archduke's, my cousin, he took me out on a sled and I was frightened. He said, Marie, Marie, hold on tight. And down we went. In the mountains, there you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images, where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Only there is shadow under this red rock. Come in under the shadow of this red rock, and I will show you something different from either your shadow at morning striding behind you or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. Frisch wette win der Heimensau, mein irisch kind, wo waldest dau, or do, I don't know. And that's German, which translates to fresh blows the wind to the homeland. My Irish child, where are you waiting? You gave me hyacinths first a year ago. They called me the hyacinth girl. Yet, when we came back late from the hyacinth garden, your arms full and your hair wet, I could not speak and my eyes failed. I was neither living nor dead, and I knew nothing. Looking into the heart of light, the silence, Ode und Lier das Mir, which is German for waste and empty is the sea. Madame Sestosterus, fair clairvoyant, had a bad cold. Nevertheless, is known to be the wisest woman in Europe, with a wicked pack of cards. Here, said she, is your card, the drowned Phoenician sailor. Look, our pearls that were his eyes, look. Here is Belladonna, the Lady of the Rocks, the Lady of Situations. Here is the man with three staves, and here the wheel, and here is the one-eyed merchant. And this card, which is blank, is something he carries on his back, which I am forbidden to see. I do not find the hanged man. Fear death by water. I see crowds of people walking round in a ring. Thank you. If you see dear Miss Equitine, tell her I bring the horoscope myself. One must be so careful these days. Unreal City. Under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge. So many. I had not thought death had undone so many. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled, and each man fixed his eyes before his feet. Flowed up the hill and down King William Street, to where St. Mary Woolnoth kept the hours, with a dead sound in the final stroke of nine. There I saw one I knew and stopped him, crying, Stetson, you who were with me in the ships at Mylai. That corpse you planted last year in your garden, has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? Or has a sudden frost disturbed its bed? Oh, keep the dog far hence, that's friend to men. Or with his nails he'll dig it up again. You hypocrite lecteur, mon semblable, mon frère. Which translates French to you hypocrite reader, my twin, my brother. Maybe a game. I maybe a task I should have you listener and you guys do is uh, see if you can keep track of any of the literary allusions. Like what is he alluding to? Hannibal, did you pick up that one walking in this unreal city, talking to, to shades of people? That would have been Dante. He yeah. also said, "I did not think on death could have undone so many." Mm -hmm. That's another quote from Dante. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, book two. 
a game of chess. The chair she sat in, like a burnished throne, glowed on the marble, where the glass held up by standards wrought with fruited vines from which a golden cupidon peeped out, another hid his eyes behind his wing, doubled the flames of seven-branched candelabra, reflecting light upon the table as the glitter of her jewels rose to meet it. From satin cases poured in rich profusion, in vials of ivory and colored glass, unstoppered, looked her strange synthetic perfumes, ungent, powdered, or liquid, troubled, confused, and drowned the senses in odors. Stirred by the air that freshened from the window, these ascended in fattening the prolonged candle flames, flung their smoke into, la into the laquaria, stirring the pattern on the coffered ceiling. Huge sea wood fed with copper burned green and orange, framed by the colored stone in which sat light a carved dolphin swam. Above the antique mantle was displayed as though a window gave upon the sylvan scene the change of Philomel by the barbarous king so rudely forced. Yet there the nightingale filled all the desert with inviolable voice, and still she cried and still the world pursues jug-jug to dirty ears. It's supposed to mimic how a nightingale sounds. And other withered stumps of time were told upon the walls. Staring forms leaned out, leaning, hushing the room enclosed. Footsteps shuffled on the stair. Under the firelight, under the brush, her hair spread out in fiery points, glowed into words, then would be savagely still. My nerves are bad tonight. Yes, bad. Stay with me. Speak to me. Why do you never speak? Speak. What are you thinking of? What thinking? What? I never know what you are thinking. Think. I think we are in rats' alleys where the dead men lost their bones. What's that noise? The wind under the door. What's that noise now? What is the wind doing? Nothing. Again, nothing. Do, do you know nothing? Do you see nothing? Do you remember nothing? I remember. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Are you alive or not? Is there anything in your head? But, oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. It's so elegant, so intelligent. What shall I do now? What shall I do? I shall rush out as I am and walk the street with my hair down so. What shall we do tomorrow? What shall we ever do? The hot water at ten, and if it rains, a closed car at four. And we shall play a game of chess, pressing lidless eyes and waiting for a knock upon the door. When Lil's husband got demobbed, I said, I didn't mince my words. I said to her myself, hurry up, please, it's time. Now, Albert's coming back. Make yourself a bit smart. He'll want to know what you'd done with that money he gave you to get yourself some teeth. He did. I was there. You have them all out, Lil, and get a nice set, he said. I swear, I can't bear to look at you. And no more can't die, I said, and think of poor Albert. He's been in the army four years. He wants a good time. And if you don't give it him, there's others will, I said. Oh, is there, she said. Something of that, I said. Then I'll know who to thank, she said, and gave me a straight look. Hurry up, please, it's time. If you don't like it, you can get on with it, I said. Others can pick and choose if you can't. But if Albert makes off, it won't be for lack of telling. You ought to be ashamed, I said, to look so antique. And her, only 31. I can't help it, she said, pulling a long face. It's them pills I took. To bring it off, she said. You have five already and nearly died of young George. The chemist said it would be all right, but I've never been the same. You are a proper fool, I said. Well, if Albert won't leave you alone, there it is, I said. What you get married for if you don't want children? Hurry up, please, it's time. Well, that Sunday Albert was home, they had a hot gammon, and they asked me in to dinner to get the beauty of it hot. 
Hurry up, please. It's time. Hurry up, please. It's time. Good night, Bill. Good night, Lou. Good night, May. Good night. Ta-ta. Good night. Good night. Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night. Good night. Maybe we'll pause after each part. All right, illusions in there. Ones you picked up on. Do you want good night, ladies? We, we taught this book this year. That's Hamlet. Good night, sweet ladies. That's Ophelia when she goes mad. That's her last, yeah, her last lines. Uh, any others? I don't know what you call the part about the Shakespearean rag. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of supposed to be like the music, like sort of music in the background yeah. popping in. That's sort of ragtime music. Uh, the change of Philomel by the Barbarous King. Yes. Do you uh, remember, does anybody know the story of Philomel and the King? I don't. So the, uh, Philomel was a beautiful young maiden, and the king was the king of ancient Rome, or he was, I think he was the king of Rome before, maybe it wasn't the king of Rome, but he was a king, and he wanted to marry Philomel, Philomel did not want to marry him, so the king raped her, and he was like, ah, oh, crap, she's going to tell everybody, so he cuts out her tongue so that she can't tell anybody. She comes home absolutely distraught. Her sister is, and parents are like, what happened? She can't tell anything. So what Philomel does is she weaves, she's an accomplished like weaver. She weaves a tapestry showing what happened, that the king raped her and cut out her tongue. Um, the people see this tapestry and they're so full of righteous anger that I think they go and they kill the king and they say no more kings ever again. I think I'm getting the story right. But in the end, Philomel, who has no tongue and lives a life of sadness, the gods take such pity on her that they turn her into a nightingale. Mm -hmm. And the nightingale is different than the birds in that all the birds sing in the morning, but the nightingale is the only bird that sings when the sun is setting. And so this nightingale gets a rapt audience. It gets to speak and sing and no one else, when no one else is singing. So Philomel, who could not talk, as now a nightingale gets to sing and everyone listens to her, but at the, as the sun is setting, so it's kind of this mournful, melancholy kind of thing. All right, that was book two. Are there more we're missing? Uh, any other? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, 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 where it starts off, oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. Um, whenever any character dies in Shakespeare, um, Hamlet dies, his last words are, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> uh, and same with King Lear. When King Lear dies, his last words are, oh. So the question is, all right, if you're an actor, how do you play that? Do you go, oh, 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 as you're dying? Or is it supposed to be sounds of like guttural death? Or is it the character trying to start off one more speech before death? You know, like, oh, being the the opening of, of like, you know, oh, for a muse of fire, right? Like, is the character still trying to talk, but death takes him away? Um, so there's that, um, that scene in the bar with Lil and Albert and mm -hmm. these two girls talking. One girl is saying like, hey, um, you look pretty nasty. Uh, your husband's coming home from war. Shouldn't you like pretty yourself up for him? He gave you money to buy new teeth. And she says, I can't. Um, those pills that I took really did a number on me. The pills that I took to bring it off, she said. And then the narrator and then says, you had five already and nearly died of young George. Is assume, uh, probably alluding to the fact that this, this person has had five abortions, had, has taken pills in order to abort a child, abort her child, and it's they've done a number on her. Like, mm -hmm. they've, it's been pretty nasty stuff. And she says, what do you get married for if you don't want kids? Um, and these pills that she's taken to, to, um, to get rid of her, of her unborn sh children um, have aged her. And now her, her friend's saying, like, Albert's coming home and you look ugly because either she's been cheating on Albert while he's right. at war or her and Albert don't want kids or whatever. Anyway, so it's kind of this, um, uh, this 
you get this, you know, the scene of these rich lovers who are talking about, who aren't talking to each other, and one of them's talking and the other one's thinking, and they play a game of chess and they talk about how they're going to go in a car and drink tea, and but there's a sort of loveless relationship. And then you have this lower class couple that also doesn't have currency between the male and the female. They want different things and they are betraying each other, and Albert seems to be in it only for the looks. And, and anyway, so it's just kind of this, that whole scene in the game of chess is all about relationships that don't work the relationship between the sexes that is broken and then the allusions to hamlet and ophelia all right part three the fire sermon uh the anybody know what the fire sermon is no it's the sermon that buddha uh it's one of the, uh, the buddha's famous sermons and it's basically like um you need to let all of your earthly passions die in the fire so um the way of of the way to enlightenment is to is to remove all strong desires. That's that's sort of the the, the fire sermon. Um, and then, so the question is: All right, is that true? Do you want to remove desires or not? All right, the fire sermon. The river's tent is broken. The last fingers of leaf clutch and sink into the wet bank. The wind crosses the brown land unheard. The nymphs are departed. Sweet Thames runs softly till I end my song. The river bears no empty bottles, sandwich paper, silk handkerchiefs, cardboard boxes, cigarette ends, or other testimony of summer nights. The nymphs are departed, and their friends, the loitering, loitering heirs of city directors, departed, have left no addresses. By the waters of Lehman I sat down and wept. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. Sweet Thames, run softly, so I, for I speak not loud or long. But at my back, in a cold blast, I hear the rattle of bones and chuckle spread from ear to ear. A rat crept softly through the vegetation, dragging its slimy, slimy belly on the bank. While I was fishing in the dull canal on a winter evening round behind the gas house, musing upon the king, my brother's wreck, and on the king, my father's death before him. White bodies naked on the low, damp ground and bones cast in a little low, dry garret rattled by the rat's foot only, year to year. But at my back, from time to time, I hear the sound of horns and motors, which shall bring Sweeney to Mr. Mrs. Porter in the spring. Oh, the moon shone bright on Mrs. Porter and on her daughter. They washed their feet in soda water. Et oh, ces voix d'enfants chantant dans la coupole. Uh, which is French for, and oh, these children's voices singing in the, the dome or the apse or the, the front of the church. Uh, and then... No, so twit, 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 jug, 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 so rudely forced to rue. It's supposed to be the, um, the sound of a nightingale. Unreal city. Under the brown fog of a winter noon, Mr. Eugenides, the Smyrna merchant, unshaven, with a pocket full of currants, C.I.F. London, documents at sight, asked me in demotic French to luncheon at the Cannon Street Hotel, followed by a weekend at the Metropole. At the Violet Hour. When the eyes and back turn upward from the desk, when the human engine waits like a taxi throbbing, waiting, I, Tiresias, though blind, throbbing between two lives, old man with wrinkled female breasts, can see at the violent hour, the evening hour that strives homeward and brings the sailor home from sea, the typist home at tea time, clears her breakfast, lights her stove, and lays out food in tins. Out of the window perilously spread her drying combinations touched by the sun's last rays. On the divan are piled, at night, her bed, 
stockings, slippers, camisoles, and stays. I, Tiresias, old man with wrinkled dugs, perceived the scene and foretold the rest. I, too, awaited the expected guest. He, the young man, carbuncular, arrives. A small house agent's clerk, where one bold stare, one on, of the low on whom assurance sits as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. The time, the time is now propitious, and he guesses the meal is ended. She is bored and tired, endeavors to engage her in caresses, which still are unreproved, if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once, exploring hands encounter no defense. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. And I, Tiresias, have four suffered all, enacted on this same divan or bed. I, who have sat by Thebes below the wall and walked among the lowest of the dead, bestows one final patronizing kiss and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. She turns and looks a moment in the glass, hardly aware of her departed lover. Her brain allows one half-formed thought to pass. Well, now that's done, and I'm glad it's over. When lovely woman stoops to folly and paces about her room again, alone, she smooths her hair with automatic hand and puts a record on the gramophone. This music crept by me upon the waters and along the strand up Queen Victoria Street. Oh, city, city, I can sometimes hear besides a public bar in Lower Thames Street the pleasant whining of a mandolin and a clatter and a chatter from within where fishermen lounge at noon where the walls of Magnus Martyr hold inexplicable splendor of Ionian white and gold. The river sweats, oil and tar, the barges drift with the turning tide, red sails wide to leeward swing on the heavy spar. The barges wash drifting logs down the Greenwich reach past the Isle of Dogs. Wayai la la layai wala layai la la. Elizabeth and Lester, beating oars, the stern was formed a gilded shell, Red and gold, the brisk swell rippled both shores. Southwest wind carried downstream the peal of bells, white towers. Wayai la la layai, wala layai la la. Trams and dusty trees, Highbury bore me. Richmond and Kew undid me. By Richmond I raised my knees, supine on the floor of a narrow canoe. My feet are at Moorgate, and my heart under my feet. After the event he wept. He promised a new start. I made no comment. What should I resent? On Margaret Sands, I can connect nothing with nothing. The broken fingernails of dirty hands. My people, humble people who expect nothing. To Carthage, then I came, burning, 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 burning. O oh Lord, thou pluckest me out. O oh Lord, thou pluckest burning. Part four. Death by water. Phlebas the Phoenician, a fortnight dead, forgot the cry of gulls and the deep sea swell and the profit and loss. A current under sea picked his bones in whispers, and he rose and fell. He passed the stages of his age and youth, entering the whirlpool. Gentile or Jew, O oh, you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider, consider Phlebas, who is once handsome and tall as you. Part 5. What the Thunder Said. After the torchlight, red on sweaty faces, after the frosty silence in the gardens, after the agony in stony places, the shouting and the crying, prison and palace and reverberations, a thunder of spring over distant mountains, he who was living is now dead. We who were living are now dying with a little patience. Here is no water but only rock. 
rock and no water in the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock, we cannot stop or think. Sweat is dry and feet are in the sand. If there were only water amongst the rock, dead mountain mouth of carious teeth that cannot spit, here one can neither stand nor lie nor sit. There is not even silence in the mountains, but dry, sterile thunder without rain. There is not even solitude in the mountains, but red, sullen faces sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. If there were water and no rock, if there were rock and also water and water, a spring, a pool among the rock, if there were the sound of water only, not the cicada and dry grass singing, but sound of water over a rock where the hermit thrush sings in the pine tree, drip, drop, drip, drop, 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 drop. But there is no water. Who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead, up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you, gliding, wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? What is that sound high in the air, murmur of maternal lamentation? Who are those hooded hordes swarming over endless plains, stumbling in cracked earth, ringed by the flat horizon only? What is the city over the mountains, cracked and reforms and bursts in the violet air? Falling towers. Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London. Unreal. A woman drew her long black hair out tight and fiddled whisper music on those strings, and bats with baby faces in the violet light whistled and beat their wings and crawled head downward down a blackened wall. And upside down in air were towers, toiling reminiscent bells that kept the hours, and voices singing out of empty cisterns and exhausted wells. In this decayed hole among the mountains, in the faint moonlight, the grass is singing over the tumbled graves. About the chapel there is the empty chapel, only the wind's home. It has no windows, and the door swings. Dry bones can harm no one. Only a cock stood on the roof tree. Cocorico, cocorico. And a flash of lightning. Then a damp gust, bringing rain. Ganja was sunken, and the limp leaves waited for rain, while the black clouds gathered far distant over Himavant. The jungle crouched, humped in silence. Then spoke the thunder. Da. Dada, what have we given? My friend, blood, shaking my heart, the awful daring of a moment's surrender, which an age of prudence can never retract by this and this only. We have existed, which is not to be found in our obituaries, or in memories draped by the beneficent spider, or under seals broken by the lean solicitor in our empty rooms. Da, diadvam. I have heard the key turn in the door once, and turn once only. We think of the key, each in his prison, thinking of the key, each confirms a prison only at nightfall. Ethereal rumors revive for a moment broken Coriolanus. Da, damiata. The boat responded gaily to the hand expert with sail and oar. The sea was calm, your heart would have responded gaily, when invited, beating obedient to controlling hands. I sat upon the shore, fishing, with the arid plain behind me. Shall I at least set my lands in order? London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down. Pois acolz na foco keglia fina, quando fiam uti chaladon. Oh, swallow, swallow, la prince d'Aquitaine à la tour abolie. These fragments I have shored against my ruins. Why then, I'll fit you, Hieronimo's mad again. 
data, diadvam, damiata, shanti, shanti, shanti. And that's the poem. That's the poem. Okay, so maybe a little longer than nine minutes. But, so... We talked in the middle there. We talked in the middle there. Yeah. Okay, so keys that I think are important. Now, at Hanenberg, I know you notoriously hate this poem. Indeed, yes. Yes. Why? Because uh, it is... I can explain later. I want to let you finish your sentence before um, I go into why I dislike this poem. The, the keys that I think... So, um, when I was taught poetry, I was taught that you always need to look for central metaphors. Try to find the metaphors through which the poem is alluding to or evoking, and then when you have those central metaphors, they will be organizing principles for understanding what this poem is doing. There's plenty in um, the wasteland, but I think the, the important ones are as follows. One is the myth and the story of the Fisher King. Now, the Fisher King is a story that comes from Arthurian romance, um, and the Fisher King is this. He was a king, or and sometimes he is the, the son of a king, and he, we'll just use the first one. So he was a king and he was wounded. He got stabbed in the guts or stabbed in the groin, which is, you know, bummer. And because he is wounded, um, he is not fertile. He cannot bear children. And the health of um, his kingdom has been affected. So like, so goes the king, so goes the, or to the king, so goes to the kingdom. So the king is wounded and cannot bear children. The kingdom is is infertile and can't grow any crops. Okay. So the knights of King Arthur's court, they come to this land that's completely desolated and wasted. And there's this king, and he's like, the rains aren't coming, and there's this famine, and I'm slowly dying. Please bring me the Holy Grail to cure me and my kingdom. And in the meantime, to try to feed his people, the king is fishing. And he's going, and he's like just praying that he catches enough fish to feed his people because the lands are not producing grain. So you have this idea of a king that has been um, sort of his his powers of generation and his powers of fertility have been cut out from under him, and his people are dying because of it. All right. So the, and then and what he's needing is a miracle. He needs Christ's holy grail to cure him. He needs this 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 outside force of God to come and bring health back to his wasted kingdom. So there's one metaphor that helps you understand this poem. Um, the second one is... Can I the, ask a dumb question? Yes. Does he explicitly reference the Fisher King? Yeah, so it was the guy that was um, um, at the end where he says, shall I put my lands in order? Um, 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 I, I sat upon the shore fishing with the airplane behind me, shall I at least set my lands in order? And then the other one where he was um, he was sitting by the banks of the Thames and he was saying, sweet Thames, roll softly as I sing my song. And he's looking at all the um, the, the garbage from like a summer's picnic, picnic mm-hmm. and now it's it's dead and he's sitting there fishing. Okay. And then also Elliot has made reference. There's apparently, and these are sort of beyond my capacities, but there are a lot of like direct quotations from the Fisher King story in Mallory mm-hmm. oh, okay. in here. Um, so there's a Fisher King. So there's this idea that a a a king who has no health and he's waiting for God to hu- cure him and he needs the knights to go off and get this. Mm. A second organizing principle or a second good metaphor in this is the Tower of Babylon. So the story of the Tower of Babylon, man in his arrogance tried to unify everything that they could, build a tower, come together as one uni- unified people and take over heaven. Let us build a tower and um, um, yeah, the Tower of Babel. You said Babylon. Oh, sorry, the Tower of Babel. 
Um, so the Tower of Babel, let us build this tower and we can take over heaven. And what does God do? Knocks it down. Messes up their languages. He, sma- he smashes their tower and he messes up their languages. Yeah. All right. In this poem, you have lots of different languages and you have all these oh. different people talking to each other and no one really understands what's going on. Some people aren't talking. Some people are. It's a poem of confusion. Why aren't yep. you talking? Why aren't you speaking? And at the end, we have, oh, yeah, those translations at the end were, Poissacos na foco cagliafina is, I'm told, Italian for, then he hid himself in the fire hmm. that refines. It's Dante. He hides himself in the, in the refining fire, the, the circle of the lustful. Quando fiam uti celadon is Latin for, when shall I be as the swallow? So, like, when am I going to be turned into a bird? Um, and then the, the Prince of Aquitaine at the ruined tower is the last French thing. So the Prince of Aquitaine, um, and then this reference to a tower that has been ruined. So you have the Tower of Babylon in here. So God confusing our languages because of our desire to take over heaven. And now you have all these characters who are living in, and now we're sort of in these ruins. And the poem ends with these fragments I have shored against my ruins. So that, that's the, sort of the second metaphor. The third one is, by the waters of Laban, I sat down and wept. Um, That's from a psalm where the Jews were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians destroyed the temple. And um, when the the waters of Laban were the markations of the Jewish kingdom, and so when they crossed out of, over Laban, over the waters of Laban, they were now in captivity. And the Babylonians make fun of them. They're like, hey, why don't you sing one of your temple songs? And they sat by the waters of Laban and wept because their temple, their structure, this thing that organized their life had been ruined and destroyed, and they were now in captivity with a hostile people. Um, um, so those are, those are sort of the metaphors that I look to to help understand what is happening in this story. You have people looking back, or people in positions right now where they are in ruins, Looking at the ruins of, they used to be these unifying principles. The Tower of Babylon, we will make this thing and we will take over heaven. The temple, we have this place that gives our life order and unity and purpose. And uh, the king, we had a prosperous nation. I was the king, I was healthy, and my people could grow crops. And now all of those things are gone. The tower is broken, the, the temple has been destroyed, and we are in captivity, and I am dying. And what all of those people are praying for or hoping for is some kind of savior, some kind of salvation, some kind of, of somebody coming in. You have other uh, elements in this poem of the road to Emmaus, um, where the two people are walking and they're like, Jesus is dead. What? I mean, we thought he was the guy. We thought he was going to bring, bring us the kingdom. And now he's dead. And then they turn around, they realize that somebody's walking with them. And it's, and it's Christ coming back. So, um, um, uh, this is what, uh, so he, he's, you know, he, uh, the other element uh, for the Bible in there is the water from the rock. We are in the desert and we have no health. We have no water. We need water from the rock. And God comes in miraculously and brings them life in the desert. Um, so, uh, why I think that those are important organizing metaphors is because that's what this poem is about. It is, we now live in a time of ruins where we have these books, we have these stories, we have these poems, we have these things of an older age, of a time that's gone before, and people who believed in that unity. 
and we no longer believe in that unity. The war, and for Eliot, World War I has destroyed that sense of, of progress and moving forward. And so for Eliot, all we can do now is he says, you know, these fragments I've shored against my ruins. Um, if you shore something, that's like waters are rising. And this whole book is fear, fear drowning. The waters are coming and they're going to drown us all. So Eliot kind of has this sense of the unity we once had is gone. And all we have is to take these little fragments of stories that we used to believe and like shove them up together like this poem does and shove them up against the rising waters. It's super depressing. Yes. Um, but to him, that is the age that we live in right now. This modern world is this wasted land where um, we don't live in a unified system of, of where we all sort of live, we all, you know, do sacrifices in the temple, or we all, um, uh, we now live in this time of captivity, this time where everything has sort of been fragmented and broken, um, and that filters down from from the top all the way to our relationships. All you have in here are relationships between men and women that don't work. Um, um, there, uh, That terrible scene that Tiresias views mm -hmm. is this kind of like hookup. Um she is coming home from work and she lives by herself in this little small flat. She doesn't even have a bed. She's got a couch. This guy who's like a clerk comes over and they have dinner and he tries to like seduce her and she doesn't care. And so he just like has sex with her. And then he's like, cool, I'm, I'm out. And he leaves. And then she's like, ooh, glad that's done and puts on a record. Right. right? Like um, uh, Elliot's saying, this is, this is sort of what we have now. This is, we don't have elizabeth and lester we don't have these great love stories of, of forbidden love or you know we don't have these uh these old tales of tiresias not tiresias of um uh, the irish guy and the viking at the beginning tristan and Isolde. we don't have those stories we now have sort of you know these empty meaningless sexual interactions so um there's a unity to it the fact that it's a big broken pile of images is the point he's saying we right. live in a big broken pile of images Eliot's conclusion is one I don't believe in. His conclusion is take the images you like and build a wall against the rising waters. That's sort of his last point. Build a wall against the rising tide. Um, uh, I, 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 I'm very different. I say, you know, rebuild the temple or wait for, you know, or, or you know, the road to Emmaus, <laughs> um, that Christ is, is, is the answer to the, to the shattered um, hopes of mankind. But um, so Hanneberg, the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I wanted to convince you that there is structure and there is overarching meaning and it is saying something more than just uh, what I think you think it is, which is just sort of like uh, um, arrogant gibberish. Oh, no, I, I see the structure. It's still arrogant gibberish, <sighs> oh, yeah. at least in my opinion. Parts of them are. I think it could still be edited. But are we we're attributing arrogance to it because it is detailed? Like what? No. Like the motive seems like, it seems strange to call it arrogant. It is um, excessive. I don't know what the word, or, or, or um, difficult, I think difficult could, to access. I think it could yeah. be edited still. Obtuse. It is, it is intentionally obtuse. It is intentionally obtuse. Yes. It, okay. it's a, there's, a, there's a high bar of requiring, a of knowing literary illusions. And yes. I myself don't even know all of them. But is that a problem in and of itself? Yes. Really? Why? I th so, I mean, I can't, I can't give my whole case against this poem here. I, I agree with everything he's saying. I mean, I don't know that he's wrong. What I, what I have a problem with is the, first of all, it's on, on first read, it's not enjoyable at all. I don't think that anybody without 
like extensive study or at least a guide could like flatly enjoy that poem or get much out of it. But the same, so is so too with Virgil. So too mm, with... That's not true. I can read Virgil and get a basic, decent story out of it. I can read but this Dante is, and get a basic, decent story out of it. I can read Homer and get the same. This is, so think of this as like an impressions of feelings as opposed to a narrative. And what, that so is when my problem. When you at the end, when you read it out loud, and I read it, I used, when we used to teach this, although Annenberg lobbied for us to teach something different, which is fine, it's a whole other conversation. But when I used to read this out loud to my students, at the end of it, the reaction was always, oh, I kind of feel sad and I don't know why. And I feel like that impression is the point. The feeling sad for something lost is is what I think Wasteland makes you feel. But that's not what they said. They said, I feel sad and I don't know why. And that, that is, that is that what is, I take issue with. I can use that. That is a starting point I can use. That's it. But that's my point. It's is, almost so good that even if you don't understand the illusions, there's still the sadness there. There's still the that, sadness. That's what you're saying, Graham. I don't, I don't think, at the end, people will be like, oh, that was great. Like, <laughs> I don't think anybody thinks that. No, right? my, but my point is that it's it's a starting point, right? Mm-hmm. You, you said I can do something with that starting point. Yeah. My, my point is that you come out the other side of that po- poem and all you have is a general sadness that can maybe be used as a starting point. Now, I can't, again, I can't give my entire sure outline of why. We got why, nine minutes. We got nine minutes. Give you it expect to me. me to explain sure why I, I dislike this kind of poetry. Yes. Yeah, maybe this is a two-parter and we bleed into the next one. I don't sure, know. Let me, I, this has been a, listener, this has been a long time coming as Hanenberg and my poetry throwdown. Oh, and give me you some. expect me to do it in no, no, now eight minutes. Just give me some. All right. Well, I first, I'm not prepared for this this morning, so it's not going to be as coherent as it could be. That's why I want you to do it. My <laughs> issue, yeah, smart. That, yeah, sure. Shove me into eight minutes yeah. at the end of an episode. So my issue with this kind of poetry is that it is needlessly obtuse and doesn't express its ideas as well as it could. And perhaps, perhaps he's doing the best job that could be done with it, right? Perhaps he's the first to do it, mm-hmm. right? And that everyone that came after him is aping his style and doing a poor job of it. That could also be true. It could oh, be that this true. I agree with you this, on that, that lots of people are aping his style. That lots of people, that one of the unfortunate legacies of Wasteland is... People try to do this, People trying to be obtuse and having it, and then and claiming it to be intelligent. Yeah. So that is one of my biggest beasts with poetry, is because that, that kind of poetry that he is doing is a really easy thing to do to try to seem intelligent and be like, oh, you just don't get it, when really there's nothing there, you're dressing up a bad idea. Right. My notion about the specifically this kind of poetry is that it is needlessly obtuse. He could say these same things in an easier to digest way. And then I tend to like these ideas in prose because it couches them with other ideas that make it more robust. Right. It is conceivable that he write this poem in a way that is easier for the layman to understand rather than shove different impressions at me and bore me out of my mind and make me go look through a thousand books to get all of his literary illusions. Right. It is possible that he could do that. Right, I think I my my biggest problem with it is the needless obtuseness to seem poetic when really, if you have a good idea, you don't have to dress it up. But hmm. so my experience of it is, I, I liked listening to what you said about the poem mm-hmm. more than the poem itself. But so here's the point: so you have this poem, and it's this pile of obtuseness, and I think you're right, but. I think it's it leaves you with the feeling of walking through a big broken house. Like if you a big wrecking ball came through a house and you're walking around and you see little snippets of something and sometimes you see things and you're like I don't even know what that is and yeah it takes some time to like look at it and pick it apart and maybe you have to go do some research and say oh he's it's that's good night sweet ladies is Ophelia. Okay, why is he talking about Ophelia in this scene? Well, Ophelia was this person who 
you know, was in love, but then because of all of the political intrigue and all this craziness, like she went mad because her boyfriend killed her father. Is there something about, is there something about uh, misplaced expectations in this poem? And then you've got, it's almost like a mystery. You've got this little thread to go on. Um, but if he had, if he had sort of spelled it out for you, I feel like you, it's, it's not the same thing as walking through, uh, walking through basically like a war zone. The style backs up the message. The style, to, the, the style backs up the, yeah. the, the point. Right. My point is that you could, I, I still think you could do the same thing without being so needlessly obtuse. You could still have a fragmented bunch of different things altogether. You could still have all those literary illusions, but you could do it in a way that was at least more pleasurable to read. No, his little why lie, 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 lie things and those, the elements of music, I agree, are a little... Um, it feels like this would have been a better mixed media thing. Like if you wanted right. to, if you, if but, and the pieces um, of translated verse, right. I, my, my issue is that whenever I read a book and they have a bunch of extra languages in there and don't, and purposely don't translate them, well, they, that is typically the author, like smart signaling saying, I'm a genius. I know different languages and you don't. Right. And that drives me crazy. Yeah. But I mean, that's not hard to translate. Right. Right. Only I, a few lines. Sure. It's, it's not hard four to translate. minutes for me to write it in the margins. Yeah. Sure. But still, like I'm, yeah, that, that's my general issue is that there, I think there is poetry out there that is good. And it's like, take Shakespeare, for example. He has incredibly complex ideas in these lengthy, complex speeches, all in difficult form. But each one of those is worth studying and a pleasure to but read. You and I both have just finished reading King Lear and is not a lot of King Lear's madness rantings or even Ophelia, her madness rantings. It is... Um, pregnant with with reason like there seems to be a, a, a like there seems to be an idea there but it's not easy to understand and you can just write off and say oh well Lear's crazy so I don't have to listen to what Lear's saying or when Ophelia is talking about all these flowers she's just crazy or, or if we do a little bit of research we realize that these meaning. flowers mean something yeah. but, so but even that's fine and I'm and I'm fine for doing that for a small ranting by King Lear but it's set in a greater context in a tale and the greater context of the tale gives it more meaning I don't want to read King Lear's rantings for two hours I don't want that Nobody wants that. They want the story of King Lear. I don't know. I just, but this feels like more comment maybe on sure. poetry broadly, not just the wasteland, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and that's the funny thing is that... It's like epic poetry it, it you probably seems, really like. Well, it seems like... Yeah, I, I do enjoy epic poetry yeah. partially because there is a story and right. it's easy to track. Uh, the It seems like when everyone thinks of academia, they think every academic must instantly love all forms of poetry. And that's not, oh, true. not true. I think true. it's uh, Marcus Aurelius who in his dedication of his book said, thank heavens for this person that they steered me away from poetry and into the political life. Like, I am glad poetry is a trap, right? And that reading that was the first time I was like, oh, I don't have to enjoy every single genre of poetry. And this is one, the needless obtuseness that bothers me, But it's, right? It's, it's, like, it's like me climbing into my ivory tower and then shutting all the doors at the bottom of the tower is what it feels like to me. It doesn't need to be. No, I, but this I, is, it's, it's, it's the leaving of impressions, right? right. Like, and that and that's what bothers me is it's an unclear idea left with an impression, and I don't want but that kind just, of poetry. That was our definition of art earlier. That it conveys something. That through. it conveys something that you can't convey through argument. Maybe he can't convey this the feeling through the like a feeling of confused sadness. He accomplishes by writing a confused, confusing poem. Exactly. Right? I, like, I get that same feeling, at least partially, from King Lear. Except it's sure. I think it's I mean, conveyed Shakespeare, well. Shakespeare's great. I don't want to argue yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, again, this is my eight-minute yeah, sure. version of why I don't like this poem and will probably continue to dislike this poem. And yeah. 
don't. I, I used to write poetry. Like the, one of the other things is this. A you do not used to write poetry. <laughs> no, no, no. Like in this style, where it was needlessly obtuse, I would pull things out of the air and have lots of extra references. I stopped doing that because I realized that what I was doing was not forming a complete whole good thought. I was dressing up bad thoughts. And I know but, Elliot's not doing that. But even just two podcasts ago, we were talking about that we should approach text with humility and be able to to say, okay, maybe there's something deeper going on here. Like, and, it, and it feels I, like you're saying, nah, screw that. It's just no, obtuse. I, I see that it's deep, but I'm done with it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I, I understand that he's doing something deeper there. I don't like the way that he's doing it. I mean, I think that at the end, that's fair. Totally, it's just, yeah. You don't like not like something because of the of the style of it. Yeah, um, I mean, that's that's just the honest truth. Like there, there's poetry I like, and there's poetry I don't, and this is a kind that I don't. <sighs> I'll just keep working on it. We'll try. Yeah, yeah. All I'll right, keep working keep on, on it. it. I'm I'm an adult man and I can dislike. Make what your I own dislike. choices. That's right. Yeah. All right. So this has been uh, a classical stuff you should know episode. That you know I I, I wish there were more motorcycles personally, but uh, like in the world. It? Oh, you mean in Mad Max? Yeah. You oh, know, like uh-huh. uh, some some chains. cars, some chains, wow. a few Chain chrome lassos. bumpers, and spray paint. So you're more of a Mad Max man, is what you're trying to say. <laughs> I'm a simple man, <laughs> there it is. and good, I enjoy good. Uh, <laughs> gasoline and loud engines. Okay. Cool. Thanks wow. for listening. You can. Email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can check us out on Twitter at C-L-S-S-C-A-L. You can look at our website, classicalstuff.net. We got all kinds of cool things there. I pick a painting or drawing or something for every episode. And so we'll see if this one is from Mad Max. We, it, just, <laughs> it just might be Good. me taking the awesome. Mad Max poster and doing a little bit of a Photoshop you know, wizardry with it. Put Elliot in there. Yep. We didn't get anything wrong and I will never go back on my statement about this poem. And thank you. So we'll see you next time. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao.